0: Section 45 of A History of Our Own Times, Volume 4, by Justin McCarthy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 66. The Anticlimax of Imperialism, Part 1. During the excitement caused by the preparations for the Congress of Berlin, a long career came quietly to a close. On May 28th, eighteen seventy eight lord russell died at his residence pembroke lodge richmond he may be said to have faded out of life to have ceased to live rather than to have died so quiet gradual almost imperceptible was the passing away not many days before his death on may ninth a deputation of representative and distinguished nonconformists had waited upon him to present him with an address on the occasion of the fiftieth anniversary of the repeal of the test and corporation acts a reform of which he was the great promoter lord russell was not able to receive the deputation his wife and son spoke for him he had not for some time taken any active part in public affairs we have already in this book spoken of his political career as closed now and then some public event aroused his attention and he addressed a letter to one of the newspapers he wrote as a man speaks who sinking quietly and gradually into death is suddenly roused to interest in the affairs of the living by catching some words of a half-whispered conversation around him and who murmurs some sentences of faint remonstrance or advice there was something strangely pathetic in these utterances with their imperfect application to the actual condition of things around and the testimony they bore to the fading man's inextinguishable interest in the progress of living history to the last moments of his life lord russell refused to surrender wholly his concern in the affairs of men the world listened respectfully to these few occasional words from one who had borne a leader's part in some of the greatest political struggles of the century and who still from the very edge of the grave was anxious to offer his whisper of counsel or of warning no one felt bound to weigh too carefully the substantial and practical value of the advice under the altered conditions of that actual time to which lord russell could hardly be said to belong any more his had been on the whole a great career he had not only lived through great changes he helped to accomplish some of the greatest changes his time had known his life was singularly unselfish he was often eager and pushing where he believed that he saw his way to do something needful and men confounded the zeal of a cause with the eagerness of personal ambition He never cared for money and his original rank raised him above any possible consideration for enhanced social distinction he had made many mistakes but those who knew him best prized most highly both his political capacity and his personal character his later years were made happy and smooth by all that the love of a household could do he had lost a son a young man of much political promise, Lord Amberley, who died in 1876. But on the whole, he had suffered less in his later time than is commonly the lot of those who live to extreme old age. The time of his death was, in a certain sense, appropriate. His public career had just begun at the time of the Congress of Vienna, it closed with the preparations for the Congress of Berlin why did not lord beaconsfield sacrifice to the gods his dearest possession his political majority immediately after the triumphal return from berlin the opinion of nearly all who pretended to form a judgment was that at that time the great majority of the constituents were with him he seemed to have reached the zenith of his own power and to have accomplished that object which is held so dear by a certain class of englishmen that of making the influence of england predominant over the councils of europe it is said that he was strongly advised by some of his northern supporters not to put the country then to the cost of a general election trade had been depressed for some time the depression was due in the first instance to causes which had no concern with politics but it had of course been made much deeper By the anxiety and uneasiness which the too enterprising policy of the government kept alive in these countries it was therefore strongly pressed on lord beaconsfield that especially in the northern counties where he had many influential supporters the drain caused by bad trade had been so heavy that it would be unfair to hasten a dissolution and thus impose large and at that time unnecessary cost on the constituencies. Whatever the reason may have been, the expected dissolution did not take place, and from that time Lord Beaconsfield never had any chance of a successful appeal to the country. From that time the popularity of his government began to go down and down. Many things were against them for which they were not responsible, many things for which they had made themselves distinctly responsible. The badness of trade and the general depression were no fault of theirs to begin with, but, as we have just said, they aggravated every evil of this kind by the strain on which they kept the expectation of the country. Their domestic policy had not been successful. They had attempted many large measures and failed to carry them through, they had not satisfied the country party to whom they owed so much the malt tax remained a grievance as it had been for generations the government had got into trouble with the home rule party mr butt had been failing in physical power and in influence for some time his place as a leader had long been practically disputed by mr parnell and was evidently about to be taken by him mr parnell a young man who lately came into parliament soon proved himself the most remarkable politician who had arisen in the field of irish politics since the day when john mitchell was conveyed away from dublin to bermuda the tactics adopted by mr parnell annoyed and discredited the government good-natured men of respectable ability and no great force of character like sir stafford northcote were wholly unable to cope with the pertinacity and policy of such an antagonist the country blamed the ministry it scarcely knew why for the manner in which the policy called obstructive had been allowed to come into force it was evident that a new chapter in irish agitation was opening and those who disliked the prospect felt inclined to lay the blame on the government as if because they happened to be in office they must be responsible for everything that took place during their official reign. All these influences combined were telling against Lord Beaconsfield's administration. Perhaps had he been still in the House of Commons and still in the possession of his full physical vigour, he might have done something to maintain the credit of his government. But in the quiet shelter of the House of Lords, he could only now and then make a show-speech, in which he usually succeeded in convincing the public of his entire independence and isolation from the policy and the purposes of his colleagues scarcely ever was a ministerial explanation of any important part of the government policy given in the house of commons without its being followed by some explanation breathing a totally different spirit and conveyed in utterly different words from the lips of lord beaconsfield In the House of Commons, Sir Stafford Northcote and Mr. Cross almost invariably endeavoured to minimize and reduce to the most practicable limits the objects of the foreign policy of the government. In the House of Lords, the Prime Minister almost invariably endeavoured to magnify his office and his mission, and to insist upon it that every step taken by him in foreign affairs was part of a great new ambitious and imperial policy most of all the ministry suffered from the effect produced upon the country by the smaller wars into which they had plunged the first of these was the invasion of afghanistan this was part of the great imperial policy which lord lytton was sent to carry out in india the government determined to send a mission to sher ali one of the sons of dost and then the ruler of Kabul. During the time when it was still uncertain whether England and Russia were not to be at war, the Russian government appeared to have sent an envoy of their own to Kabul, with the object, no doubt, of obtaining the direct or indirect assistance of Sher Ali. The English government determined to guard against possible danger for the future by establishing a distinct and paramount influence in Afghanistan. Sher Ali strongly objected to receive either a mission or a permanent resident. The mission was sent forward. It was so numerous as to look rather like an army than an embassy. It started from Peshawar on September 21, 1878, but was stopped on the frontier by an officer of Sher Ali, who objected to its passing through until he had received authority from his master this delay was magnified by the news first received here into an insolent rebuff the unlucky performance which had been attempted in france in eighteen seventy was by chance or error or purpose enacted over again on a small scale in england the english envoy was made to play the part of the french ambassador and the passion of the english people for the moment became inflamed with the idea of an insult to the english flag the envoy was ordered to go on, and before long the mission was turned into an invasion. The Afghans made but a poor resistance, and the English troops soon occupied Kabul. Sher Ali fled from his capital. One portion of our forces occupied Kandahar. Lord Beaconsfield announced that the object of the invasion of Afghanistan was satisfactorily accomplished, that England was now in possession of the three great highways which connected Afghanistan with India, that he hoped the country would long remain in possession of them, and that it had secured a frontier which would render the Indian Empire invulnerable. Sher Ali died, and Yakub Khan, his son, became his successor. Yakub Khan presented himself at the British camp, which had been established at Gandamak, a place between Jalalabad and Kabul. Here the Treaty of Gandamak was signed on May fifth, eighteen seventy-nine. The Indian Government undertook by this treaty to pay the Amir sixty thousand pounds a year, and the Amir ceded or appeared to cede, what Lord Beaconsfield called the scientific frontier, and agreed to admit a British representative to reside in Kabul. On those conditions, he was to be supported against any foreign enemy with money and arms, and if necessary, with men. Hardly had the country ceased clapping its hands and exulting over the quiet establishment of an English resident at Kabul when a telegram arrived announcing that the events of November 1841 had repeated themselves that city. The tragedy of Sir Alexander Burns was enacted over again, down almost to its smallest details that terrible drama was played once more. Only the actors were new. A popular rising took place in Kabul exactly as had happened in 1841. Sir Louis Cavagnari, the English envoy, and all or nearly all the members of his staff were murdered. There was nothing to be done for it but to invade Kabul over again and take vengeance for the massacre of the English officers. The British troops hurried up, fought their way with their usual success, and on the Christmas Eve of 1879. Kabul was again entered. Yakub Khan, accused of complicity in the massacre, was sent as a prisoner to India, possibly, as was then thought, to await his trial for a share in the murder. Kabul was occupied but not possessed. The English government held in their power just as much of Afghanistan as they could cover with their encampments. They held it for just so long as they kept the encampments standing. The Treaty of Gandamach was, of course, nothing but a waste of paper. The scientific frontier had not even been defined. It was to have been provided for in a supplementary document to the treaty, which was to set forth its precise line and extent. This part of the business was never accomplished, and the terms of the bond, so far as they had any real existence at all, were washed off the paper in the blood of Sir Louis Cavagnari. We got into Afghanistan, there now remained a far greater difficulty to get out of it. Blood will have blood, says Macbeth. The war in South Africa was, if possible, less justifiable. It was also, if possible, more disastrous. The region which we call South Africa consisted of several states, native and European, under various forms of authority. Cape Colony and Natal were for a long time the only English dominions. The Orange Free State and the Transvaal Republic were Dutch settlements. In 1848 the British government had established its authority over the Orange River territory, but it afterwards transferred its powers to a provisional government of Dutch origin. The Transvaal was a Dutch republic with which we had until quite lately no direct connection in eighteen fifty two the english government resolved that its operations and its responsibilities in south africa should be limited to cape colony and natal and distinctly recognised the independence of the orange free state and the transvaal republic besides these states of what we may call european origin there were a great many native communities some of which had enough of organisation to be almost regarded as states the Kaffirs, as we all know, had often given us trouble before. The supposed insurrection of Langa Libalali had been suppressed in 1874 with great severity, and Langa Libalali had himself been captured, tried, and imprisoned. The most universal opinion of independent observers was that Langa Libalali had not intended insurrection, and that he had been unfairly and unjustly dealt with. It is important to mention the fact here, because there can be no doubt that the treatment of Langali Balali had considerable influence on the minds of others of the native chiefs. The most powerful tribe in South Africa was that of the Zulus. Natal was divided from Zulu territory only by the river Tugela. The ruler of the Zulu tribe, Setsueyo, owed his throne to a great victory which he obtained over his brother, who was killed in the battle along with some three thousand of his adherents. Setueo was much inclined to a cordial alliance with the English, and was anxious to receive his crown as a kind of gift at our hands. Although he did not owe his power in any direct sense to us, yet he went through a form in which our representatives bore their part of accepting his crown at the hands of the English sovereign. He was often involved in disputes with the Boers or Dutch-descended occupants of the Transvaal Republic. Other native tribes were still more directly and often engaged in quarrels with the Boers. The Transvaal Republic made war upon one of the greatest of these African chiefs, Seko Kuni, and had the worst of it in the struggle. The Republic was badly managed in every way. Its military operations were a total failure, its exchequer was ruined there seemed hardly any chance of maintaining order within its frontier and the prospect appeared at the time to be that its south african enemies would overrun the whole of the republic would thus come up to the borders of the english states and possibly might soon involve the english settlers themselves in war under these conditions a certain number of disappointed or alarmed inhabitants of the transvaal made some kind of indirect proposition to england that the republic should be annexed to english territory sir theophilus shepston was sent out by england to ascertain whether this offer was genuine and national he seems to have been entirely mistaken in his appreciation of the condition of things acting under the impression that the boers were willing to accept english authority he boldly one might say lawlessly declared the republic a portion of the dominions of great britain meanwhile there had been a dispute going on for a long time between setswayo the zulu king and the transvaal republic about a certain disputed strip of land the dispute was referred to the arbitration of england with whom Setsuo was then on the most friendly terms four english arbitrators decided that the disputed strip of territory properly belonged to the Zulu nation. End of section 45.